So in these classes, um, I'm going through uh, a curriculum that's called the Dharma Essentials. Dharma is a Sanskrit word that means what holds you up or what uplifts you or gives you support. And it's um, often translated into English as either truth or religion or spirituality. And so the, the Buddhist philosophy, the Buddhist doctrine is considered a form of Dharma. Um, in, in the Dharma Essentials, we are giving the, uh, the, the point is to give a concise but still in-depth uh, series of teachings on Buddhist philosophy and uh, rhetoric and meditation and practice and things like that. <clears throat> so my teacher who developed this, Lama Marut, says uh, it's everything you need and nothing you don't. So we are working, um, the, this class is about um, perception, the process of perception, understanding how the mind works, and um, using, using our mind uh, effectively to interpret and understand our experiences. So um, specifically, we're looking at what is the cause of the mind and what is, what is the basis or foundation for what we think of as our sense of self. Um, this is the uh, fourth in four classes. So I'm going to review the, what we've been talking about the previous classes and today we're going to talk about a Buddhist concept called the links of dependent origination which is a specific way of looking at how we um, how our mind is working to create the reality as we experience it. So we're looking initially at the, um, the materialist view of mind, and this is a debate that has been going on for thousands of years. Of course, it's, there, we have a lot of uh, um, new neuroscience just in the last 10 or 20 years that's giving us a lot more information about how the brain works. But the, the essential argument that the the mind is an aspect of the brain or an aspect of the nervous system. Is a, basically, it, the mind is a physical thing or it's dependent on our physical basis has been uh, a debate that's been going on for thousands of years. So we're looking at uh, the, uh, a uh, Buddhist teacher, a Buddhist thinker named um, Dharmakirti who lived uh, around 630 AD and uh, a couple of uh, commentators who have written about the things that Dharmakirti was discussing, um, which is this basis for mind. So in the, in the materialist worldview, there's a few different ways of looking at how the mind works, that the mind is, they, they all essentially are saying that the mind is dependent on the brain or dependent on the body in some way, or caused by the brain, either the, the, the mind is something which is um, created by the nervous system, where we are looking at like the um, the sense of sight is uh, created by you know data hitting the eyeball organ and then traveling on long neural pathways and then being absorbed and processed by the brain, and then the brain more or less creates an internal map of the outside world. Based on this, based on what's hitting the eyeball, um, and that the the eyeball is giving us a, 
a 100% accurate interpretation of the outer world that we're looking at. Um, so this is, uh, that's one example of how the materialist argument is looking at how the mind is created by the sense organs or created by the neurology. But in the karmic worldview, I mean the, uh, the Buddhist worldview, the, the whole idea is kind of turned on its side because in the karmic worldview, it's really working the other way around that, or, or more accurately, they're coming into existence together, that the, the, um, the mind is a product of the experience of, of the outer world, not an experience of the nervous system uh, coming from within our own physiology. So the, the karmic model of mind is that the mind is an ongoing process of uh, the outer world and the inner world coming into existence in conjunction. What, uh, what keeps the mind going is the process of habit, the process of thinking that I myself am a, a self-existing thing that I, I know this is a lot of technical Buddhist jargon. It's a little tricky to teach these classes when um, when we go so long in between classes and it's kind of an informal setting, you know, and it's like 87 degrees in the room and <laughs> I'm sweating copiously. In the Buddhist view, the, the sense organs, or rather the sense consciousnesses, the process of perception is what generates or what brings into existence the, the sense organs and then by extension the visible world. So we're working from a radically different, um, a radically different ontological way of looking at the universe. Instead of assuming that the physical world is uh, is exactly as we perceive it and that our senses are giving us a accurate pers uh, perspective, an accurate perception of the outer world, the Buddhist worldview flips it around and says that consciousness is the, that mind is the basis of consciousness. Consciousness is the basis of the capacity for perception and the capacity for perception is what generates the physical world. The physical world includes both our body, our subjective sense of ourselves, our own um, qualia of this is my body and uh, my very distinctive personal sense of, of, of my experience of my personal world, that that, that that physical sense of the world and the world itself are both coming from the same place. They're both a product of the mind. Or more accurately, that the mind is the process of perceiving uh, the reality that, that we're perceiving. And again, forgive me if that this sounds topsy-turvy, but I hope that as we get through the class it will become more clear. Um, the, the Buddhist worldview is based on concepts of karma and emptiness. Karma is 
the reason why we perceive the world the way that we do. Um, everybody is perceiving a distinct and unique world. Um, we, we talk about it as if we having, we're having a common experience, but in reality, we are entirely imprisoned is too strong of a word, but that's almost, it's almost right, that we're, we're completely trapped in our own experience. We're, we don't have the capacity to have a shared experience with another being. This is, uh, the reason we're having the experience that we are is because of karma. And karma is the process of habit, of self-identity, of history, of the process of evolution, of sociology. All of these things are part of karma, and they all combine to create our own distinctive personal sense of the, of, of the world, the, the knowable world, the experienceable world. The flip side of that is called emptiness or voidness. And emptiness is the assertion that the things that we experience, in fact, only exist because of the way that we experience them. That there, there is no accurate, there is no world out there that we're accurately perceiving because each person is perceiving the world slightly differently. In, in, um, in like rhetoric and philosophy, this is called perspectivism, right? The idea that each person has a unique perspective and we're all having a different point of view on the same thing. Emptiness takes it one step further, which says that perspectivism is the way that the universe is really working. That, that the world exists the way that it does because our karma forces us to perceive the world the way that, it, the way that we do. So when we get into the nitty-gritty of that, the 12 links of dependent origination, we're, what we're looking at is how the, those, the steps of that process are working. So in one of the core assertions or dogmas of the, of the Buddhist worldview is that um, consciousness is uh, not created or destroyed by the body. This is why we're trying to, we look at the materialist view of mind and we're trying to look at what the alternatives are because in the Buddhist worldview, the mind continues on after death. That in fact, time has no beginning or end and that we've been in a process of rebirth since, as they say, beginningless time. So, it's not so much that there's a past in which we had a past life and a future in which we have a future life. It's more that there's an ongoing now, which is the perception of reality driven by the process of consciousness. And that the process of now and our sense of ourself, we, we have a sense of time passing in a linear fashion, but that that's a quality of perception, not a quality of the way that the world is working inherently. And it's a big pill to swallow because straight away Buddhism yanks the rug out from under us by saying, okay, there, first of all, there is, no knowable, there is no knowable world that you're accurately having a perception of. That the, world, the knowable world as you know it is created by the process of perception. That you're not wandering around in some vast and incompre incomprehensibly massive universe kind of bumping into objects 
but rather that your consciousness is the center axis of your universe, your distinctive individual universe, and that the, the reality that you experience is coming into existence moment to moment by your karma, forcing you to perceive what is otherwise a blank screen. Are we okay so far? That's big. <laughs> <laughs> My brain's not melting yet. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, Dharmakirti, circa 630, um, was one of the main uh, logicians in uh, Buddhist history who um, developed a logical proof for how past and future lives exist. And I'll present it to you and, and you can interpret it as you will. Um, to paraphrase, he, he first goes about by disproving that the sense organs are accurately perceiving the world. And I, th and I, kind of, and I just made that argument, you know, that the sense organs are actually dependent upon the sense consciousnesses. The, con the, co the sense consciousnesses predispose the sense organs and the sense organs predispose the or predetermine the uh, perceivable world. Um, so, so already Dharmakirti has disproven that we're perceiving a, uh, that the, that we are a physical thing perceiving a physical world. And so, according to his logic, mind stuff is substantially different than physical stuff. Um, they're of two different sorts. Um, for example, if, um, if the physical body is damaged, it has an effect on the mind, but it doesn't make the mind any more or less in quantity or, or capability. And ev even, a even an injury to the brain will change the way that consciousness works, or the mind, it changes the way that the mind works, but the mind itself is not changed. There's the, the substance, for lack of a better word, of mind, is unchanged by damage to the physical body. Although the way the mind works changes, the mind itself does not. So Dharmakirti is now asserting that the physical body, which is going through a process of physical change, and the mental, the, the mind, which is going through a process of mental change, are distinctly different types of things. Now, his, his next assertion is that um, a, for something to exist, it has to be caused by something similar to it. So the, the cause of our body is physical stuff. The way that um, our parents' genetics merged at the moment of conception and led to the generation of the embryo and a birth process and, a, and then we grow up to adulthood. These are, these are the physical material causes for our present day body, right? But our mind, uh, according to Dharmakirti, was, um, was uh, kind of captured or merged with the physical body at the moment of conception. And of course, that precise moment varies. Some Buddhists say it's the moment of conception, and some say it's three weeks later or three months or whatever. Um, that's beside the point. That the mind comes into the body at the moment of conception and his, uh, his rationale for this is that the mind, the present moment of mind, 
was caused by the previous moment of mind. The previous moment of mind was caused by the previous moment of mind. Therefore, the first moment of mind in this physical body must have been caused by a pre-existing moment of mind. I personally find that kind of flimsy logic, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, it's what thousands of years of Buddhist philosophy is based upon, and a lot of people have challenged it. So I just I go with it. You know, that's that's the logical proof. That's the that's the proof that mind is separate from body, and that and therefore there are past and future lives, and therefore we. Um, have to take responsibility for our cosmic evolution because we're not actually just limited to one one lifetime. And so that's why we look at the 12 links of dependent origination. Um, these 12 links are, um, this is basically the kind of one of the core parts of Buddhist ontology or metaphysics or how the universe is working on a subtle level. Uh, we're going through the subtle moment-to-moment -moment workings of the mind that lead to our uh, con ongoing continued existence, the, this infinite past and future life montage. Um, Because, of course, you know, it goes without saying in the Buddhist worldview that um, life is suffering. And we're trapped in samsara for countless eons. And that we, uh, samsara is the cycle of rebirth that is um, unconsciously driven. Karma is created by our habitual reactivity and tendencies that um, sometimes we're aware of, but we don't stop ourselves. And sometimes we're not even aware of them. Um, many of them are cultural things we learn when we're, you know, when we're infants before we even really are, are aware of ourselves. Um, all of these are aspects of karma. And it's what drives our mental process through samsara. But the promise of Buddhism is that there's an alternative to samsara. It's not the way things have to be. Our mind is not, by definition, trapped in a state of suffering. We're not trapped in a state of habitual reactivity, of criticism and negative self-talk and whatnot. That we can shift the way that our minds work. And not just like gradually in a little bit, you know, like Freud said, the purpose of psychotherapy is to get people from extreme unhappiness to ordinary unhappiness. Uh, and that's like the best psychotherapy can do, uh, according to Freud. Um, well, Buddhism says you want to start it at ordinary unhappiness and then get to or ordinary happiness and then get to extraordinary happiness. An extraordinary happiness looks like a world in which everybody is having a good time and nobody has any problems. And so that's what a Buddha, that's the kind of world that a Buddha, these, you know, we have all these artistic representations of enlightened beings. This is what a Buddha, an awakened being, is awakening to. That the universe is fundamentally A-OK, -okay. everything's fine here. The, the problems that we have in the world are our own habits and our own uh, 
tendency to be attached to ourselves, to be attached to things in general, but to be attached to ourselves in particular. So uh, the fundamental flaw in our mind is ignorance. And ignorance, isn't, uh, ignorance doesn't mean not knowing. It means thinking we're right about something that we're wrong about. And what we're wrong about is how the universe is working. We think that, there's a, that objects have inherent existence and that we're interacting with them. And Buddhism says that what's really happening is that the, the sense perception and the sense objects are, inter, are in interrelationship at all times. So ignorance is the first, of the, is the first link, the first of the stages. And then ignorance is what drives karma. Karma formations or um, samskaras, to use a little Sanskrit terminology. Um, ignorance drives us, to, drives the process of karma. And at this point, we're not talking about planting, planting karma the way like we, when we're referring to like when somebody insults you and whether you in stay, whether you stay calm or whether you get upset and insult them back. That's further along the line. What we're talking about is the, the process of karma itself, the tendency for us to drive our own ignorance by making bad decisions because we don't understand what's, how things are really working. The big problem with karma is that there is a gap between the cause and the effect. So according to the laws of karma, the rules of karma, the, <laughs> I mean, it, karma doesn't have rules. It's, it's trying to articulate a causality that's already happening. <coughs> but according to karma, the, the things that happen to us, whether they're good or bad, are caused by the intentions we had behind our activities in the past. But there's a time gap. So it's not like when we step on an ant and then our arm breaks. But according to karma, it's the, it's the willingness to harm another being that creates the tendencies and the patterns to bring harm back upon, back, back upon us. And you could look at it as sort of like a mystical kind of cosmic thing where there's like some, I don't know, cosmic tally or something like that. And there's like a Santa Claus keeping track of if you're naughty, you're nice. And if you're naughty, you get coal or whatever. But it's, it's really, I, I think it's really more like if you invest, if you, if you have a prevailing negative attitude that inf affects your relationships and it affects the people around you and that ripples out and it ripples back. And it's not so much like a, a clear cause and effect, like I stamp, stepped on an ant in 1982 and I got a broken arm in 2017. I think that, that that's like a, a symbolic or a metaphorical way of helping us get a, a feeling of, of, how, of how our intentions come back at us. But really it's more like if you want to live in a better world, you act in such a way that you're going to bring about a better world. And so we have to, with our intentions especially, because you can have a smile on your face but have negative intentions, it still ripples out. People can sense it, you know what I mean? 
So there's that time gap. There's, it's not always clear why things are happening. Like, like you know, the, these are like classic questions that you've, I'm sure you've thought of yourself as like, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? And why do, you know, babies die of diseases and things like this, like preventable diseases? And so according to karma, first of all, it's too complex for a puny mind like a human beings to really wrap our mind around because there are way too many moving parts. Like just the number of trillions of cells in your own body that you have no control over, let alone the trillions of cells in all of the other beings, let alone the, uh, the atoms in, you get my drift. Like there's a lot that we don't have control over. And that's kind of one of the things, one of the key takeaways from thinking about karma is to like lighten up a little bit and realize that we're do everybody is doing the best that we can and that we're largely driven by unconscious or um, unconscious impulses or physical forces that are literally beyond our control or even really comprehension. Uh, so we can like relax a little bit and chill and at the same time do our best to always put our best foot forward. And, and that's what you know, the, the practices of Buddhism are about, is learning how to develop patience, um, which means not getting angry when you're being provoked. Um, you know, there's, there's no points for being patient with people who are nice to you. You know, patience is, is like staying calm when someone is really in your face. And that's how, like, to, you, is staying patient with, with an angry person going to like make them less angry? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they get more angry because they feel like you're being condescending or something like that. But nonetheless, you're trying to cultivate a peaceful heart in your own self, you know? And that's how you plant good karma, positive karma, trying to change the, change the stream away from reactivity and negativity and learn to apply some patience and kindness and willingness to help other people even when it looks like there are... Um, when they're the cause of the problems, you know? But they're not the cause of the problems. The cause of the problems are karmic patterns that are cosmic in scope, you know? So that's what we're talking about, karmic formations. Not necessarily like your own specific, my specific karma, but uh, the process of karma. Okay. The um, ignorance drives karma. Karma drives consciousness. Um, in this case, consciousness means the capacity to perceive sensations, uh, the, the capacity to process information. Uh, the, there's, there's not, at this stage, there's not like contents of consciousness. It's just the capacity for consciousness. So car ignorance drives karma. Karma drives the capacity for consciousness. Consciousness drives... Uh, the next stage, four, is name and form. And uh, in, in Buddhist physiology, there are the five heaps or the five skandhas. Has anybody heard this? No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, this, the, the five skandhas are, uh, you guys are really in for a treat because you're getting like a ton of information. <laughs> It's kind of drinking through a fire hose. Um, 
The five skandhas are Buddhist physiology, and the there are four mental, there are four, five parts to our being. Four of them are mental, and one is physical. So the physical skanda, the physical heap or the physical part of our being, it is our physical body, but it's also the physical world. From this consciousness-driven model of how reality is working, our physical body and the physical world, even though they seem to us as distinct, are actually part of the same thing. They're all part of, it's part, part of our quote-unquote body, the physical world. Um, our prana, our energy, flows from our consciousness through the sense consciousnesses through the sense organs and into the physical world. That's not Buddhism, that's from uh, Sankhya philosophy, another Indian thing that was around before Buddhism um, and was kind of adopted into and, into and incorporated by Buddhism. So the physical world, our physical body and the physical world is one of the parts of our, our, of our bodies. The, the other four are our, our consciousness, the capacity for thought, uh, the, the capacity for perception, thoughts, which is uh, our ability to rationalize and make decisions, feelings, which is our um, sense impressions and our reactions to them, and the fourth is volition, the capacity for, uh, for will or um, action in the world. The, the, it's usually called other factors. The fourth one is called other factors, but I saw somebody else translate it as volition, and I find other factors not very easy to work with, but volition kind of makes sense. Um, that's the fourth. So we have ignorance drives karma. Karma drives consciousness. Con consciousness drives the physical world and our mental parts, which is our capacity for perception and discernment. That then flows into uh, sense impressions. And sense impressions are when we begin to be able to distinguish this from that. Uh, this is a one person and that is another person. This is... Um, and, and an important part of this is to distinguish it as pleasurable, painful, or neutral. Um, so... Uh, this is the sixth stage, sense impression, it's, um, and its purpose is to ascertain if I like something, if I dislike something, or if I have no feeling about it whatsoever. The next stage is feeling, and feeling is the, um, the experience of something as pleasurable, painful, or neutral. So the prior stage is the ability to distinguish. It's simply the sense impact and says, okay, good, bad, like when you touch a, a burner and you react before you even notice that it's painful. Whereas the experience is like noticing the particular qualities of that sensation, whether it's positive or negative or neutral. So again, to review so far, ignorance drives the process of karma. Karma is what creates the capacity for consciousness. Consciousness drives um, the, the manifestation of the, of the different parts of our physical and mental bodies. 
the different parts of our physical and mental body is what creates the capacity to, dis to the capacity to distinguish between pleasurable, painful, and neutral sensations. That's what gives us the capacity to experience them and actually have the distinct qualia of that particular phenomenon. And here's where it starts to get interesting because that's what drives craving. And craving is considered to be one of the core mistakes that we're making that drives our ignorance. The, the, um, the wrong view that the quality of pleasure or pain is in the object. And therefore, if it's a pleasurable object, I want to get it. And if, it's, and if it's a painful object, I want to get away from it. But that's a fundamental flaw because the object is being driven by karma. It's, the, the qualities are not in the object. That's why you, different people can watch the same movie and one person can like the movie and another person can hate the movie. The, qual, the movie's not likable or dislikable from its own side. If, it, if the movie were likable from its own side, everybody who saw it would like it. You know? If, I, need a, I need a prop. I don't have a prop. Does anybody have a pen? If, yeah. uh, if I show this object to a dog, the dog is not going to see a pen. The dog is going to try this object out and see how it functions for them in their world. I see it as a pen. I pick up this object and there's no question in my mind that this is a pen and I could write with it. If this was a pen, if, if this object was inherently, intrinsically, self-existently a pen, if I gave it to a dog, the dog would write with it. The dog sees it as a chew toy or something, and I see it as a pen, but we're both right. And that proves that I impute pen onto this collection of colors and shapes, and the dog imputes chew toy or whatever the dog imputes onto it based on the same colors and shapes. And the, and the question is, does it function? If it functions as a chew toy, then the dog's perception is accurate. The dog has a valid perception of this as a chew toy. And according to Buddhist metaphysics, that's how we have proof that, th that in this, this example, the object is not inherently, intrinsically, from its own side, a pen. The penness are qualities that I perceive in the sense data. And likewise, a different kind of creature would perceive a different uh, type of object from the same sense data. But because I'm committed to my idea, driven by karma and ignorance, that, that uh, the way I see the world is the right way of seeing the world, then I believe that the desirable or undesirable qualities of an object are intrinsic in the object. I hate movies by that director. And anybody who likes movies by that director is obviously having an invalid perception, right? <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not true. Everybody can look at the same sense data and have different valid perceptions that are driven by their own individual karma. And then based on that, we 
think, you know, the, um, the happiness producing qualities are in the ice cream. And that's why I want, thank you, Delia. And that's why I want to eat ice cream because ice cream is good from its own side. And so I crave the ice cream. But we know this is wrong because after the second or third pint, the ice cream stop, ceases to be a desirable object and starts to be an undesirable object. So if ice cream was desire, if, if ice cream had the capacity for happiness in the ice cream, then the more we ate, the happier we would get. It would be impossible for the ice cream to transform from a happiness producing object to an unhappiness producing object. But because we don't get that, we keep thinking like the solution is in the money or the career or in the family and the, or in the relationship or the whatever it is. And so we're out there trying to like micromanage a universe that is more or less not under our control because we think if we can get all the stuff stacked in the right order, then like everything will be fine. Like I can get on, like I can build a little ivory tower and I can sit up there and everything will be cool. But, and so that's, that's the craving. Then uh, in the to 12 links of dependent origination, they actually distinguish between craving and clinging. And so craving is the, uh, is the, is like the happiness is coming from the ice cream. I have to get the ice cream. And then clinging is like, like a bonfire of that, you know, craving is like the capacity to, to want the object because we, ignorantly believe that the happiness causing characteristics are coming from the object and clinging is when we blanket that attitude all over our whole world and we're continually reacting to everything with these these forms of craving and clinging so in buddhism in, in this in the 12 links of dependent origination they they say there are three types of craving um one is craving uh, the, what, what is obvious, which is wanting to have things that we think have happiness characteristics, uh, wanting to have more of the things we like, but then we can also crave to push away things that have unhappiness causing characteristics. The other way of looking at, I, I don't really like that presentation because I think it's easier to think of it as desire and aversion, like desire is I want more of the things that make me happy and aversion is I want to get the things that make me unhappy away from me. But in this one, they put them both into, cling, into craving. And then the third, and this is the one that's actually critical for this, um, for the 12 links, is um, the craving to, the craving to continue to exist. The, the attachment to my sense of self as a reified, solid, like, I, Mojo, am an important person. And like here, I have a long list of reasons why I can tell you that I'm an important person. But that's coming from this sense that I'm a self-existent thing, when it really I'm a process of karma. And my own, my own sense of self is, is forced upon me by this process of karma that's driven through the 12 links of dependent origination. So these different forms of craving, wanting to have the things I want, wanting to push away the things that I don't want, and most importantly, the desire to keep being me is what drives the process. And then that's what leads to step 10, which is becoming. And this is, here we are at step 10 at what we now think of as reality. 
So the steps one through nine are like the subtle metaphysical building blocks of how our mind is sort of forcing reality out through starting with ignorance and then our, the particular ways that our misunderstanding grows and builds and kind of snowballs until finally we find ourselves at step 10 in reality, you know, the world that we experience it. And then steps, uh, step 11 and 12 are about the process of rebirth. Um, the, the fact that in karmic, uh, in Buddhist karmic physiology, I guess we would call it, um, the last moment of consciousness is sort of the culmination of all of your impulses and habits and intuitions and experiences of your life. And it's, in karma, they talk about karmic seeds, uh, like, like what you would plant in the garden. And the, the more powerful and vibrant the seed is, the, the larger and greater the results are going to be. And the, so the last moment of consciousness is like the biggest, most massive karmic seed of your life. And that's what drives your consciousness into the next rebirth. And so usually that moment of consciousness involves some form of, I'm not ready to go yet. I'm still, I'm st I still need to be alive. I still need to be me. And that's based on this, uh, these earlier stages of like, of ignorance based on, you know, building this model of like, I'm me and the world's out there. And if I get more of good things, I'll be happy. And if I get rid of the bad things, I won't be happy. I mean, I, I will also be happy if I get rid of the things I don't want. And the most important thing, my most important possession is my own self, my own body, my mind, my, my sense that I'm me and that I'm real. And that's the biggest clinging of all, is clinging to continued samsaric existence, ignorantly clinging to continued samsaric existence at the moment of death. And that's what drives the process of rebirth. And be, so, because all of the karma we create is selfish, including the karma that, of, that created this body and this mind, um, it can't last. Karma wears out. Good, that's why we lose things that we like. And, um, you know, things, things get old. Our, our possessions get old. We get sick of things, you know. And, and those are all signs that the happiness quality thing, the, hap the happiness creating characteristics of the thing fade away over time. The karma that brings the happy thing into our life and frankly, you know, equally the thing, karma that brings the unhappy, unhappy thing into our life are, are, uh, are temporary, they fade away. And likewise, our bodies do. And so this is the karmic cause for for uh, illness and aging and eventually death. But death is then driven back into the process of rebirth through, the, through these 12 links. So we have ignorance, which drives the process of karma, which generates the capacity for consciousness, which develops our physical and mental uh, reality, our physical and mental self, which drives the, uh, the sense consciousnesses and the sense organs, which then leads to the sense impressions, which leads to a feeling of 
a feeling and experience of this is good, this is bad, I like this, I don't like this, get it closer, get it away. And that's what leads to attachment and grasping. Grasping is what drives the process of becoming, what drives our generation of reality that we experience. That's what drives the process of rebirth. And because, because uh, things that are caused last for a while, eventually fade away, that's what drives the process of illness, aging, and death. Whew. Twelve lengths of dependent origination, ladies and gentlemen. So the um, one of the main practices in Buddhism, as maybe you've heard, you are in a Buddhist center right now, is meditation. And meditation has a lot of different forms and styles. Um, there are many different techniques to developing meditation. But based on what you've heard in this class, um, one of the primary purposes and functions of meditation is to develop a capacity for equanimity and uh, mental stability. Uh, equanimity is the ability to not get so ruffled by our experiences, to not get so high on the good things and not get so bummed out on the bad things, and, and to learn to be more balanced and, and, and uh, have a, a positive, accepting attitude towards things that come to us, knowing that they're temporary, knowing that it's driven by a process of causality that's too complex to understand. And the other is to uh, stabilize our consciousness so that we don't that we don't have those kinds of um, emotion habitual and emotional reactions where there, we get triggered by certain things or um, we lose our patience when we're being provoked. And these these will have nice benefits for your, for your life. Um, it's easier to avoid conflicts with people. If you notice irritation before it becomes anger and you can say, oh, I'm feeling irritated. I'm going to apply patience before I fly off the handle because I know that this person is about to push me off over the edge. And that just makes life easier. But the real point is that if you can stabilize your consciousness and go through the dying process lucidly, then you have a much greater um, capacity to determine where your rebirth will be. If we are living unconsciously and we're reacting to our emotions, if we're reacting to a craving and aversion, which leads us to be willing to push people out of the way a little bit in order to get what we want or, um, you know, basically, you know, this is the ethics in Buddhism, you know, is to not hurt other people and to try to help other people. But when we're, when we think that if we get the happiness producing object that we'll be happy, then we're willing to compromise our ethics a little bit and, and hurt people in order to get it. And and uh, karma is watching those things, you know? I mean, you, I know I do. I, I assume everybody has things th that, no matter how many decades have passed, when you look back on that memory, you still have that, like, cringy thing, like, oh, I really wish I hadn't done that. Um, 
And that's a really interesting example of karma. Like those things that we do haunt us, you know? I don't know about you, but uh, if that's the karmic seed that goes off in your mind as the last thing that goes through your mind as you're dying, then that's what's going to drive your karmic rebirth process. And, uh, and the human world that we all share is pretty damn good. They get a lot worse, you know what I mean? There are states of kind consciousness. Like when Buddhism talks about the hell realms and stuff like that, they're not saying like hell is like another place you go and you're going to like reincarnate on a different crappy planet or something like that, or like it's underground. It's, it's driven by consciousness, you see? So any horrible nightmare realm that you can imagine is a realm that is theoretically habitable by beings, right? Because the beings are what's driving their mind. And so we want to stabilize our consciousness by, mas by mastering or at least getting kind of skillful with meditation so that as we're going through, those, through the dying process, we can stabilize our mind and control our, the contents of consciousness, control the flow of our mind, so that instead of having one of those big regrets be the last thing that goes through your mind, you have something very positive and hopeful and altruistic, which can then lead to a happier rebirth for yourself, but that's what gives you the capacity to do more to have an impact on the lives of others. And that's really ultimately all that Buddhas do. Like an awakened being is a being who has infinite love and infinite compassion and who does everything that they can to help other beings in whatever way that they can. And that's the goal, you know, that's what we're trying to, that's, that's ideally what we're trying to become. You know, not just end our own suffering, but really end suffering for others as well. So, thank you very much for enduring this marathon of highly technical Buddhist jargon. I hope that even if it was too much information, that um, at least there was some um, way to draw it together and, and um, an encouragement to, to have a, a meditation practice.